And so people will be volunteering to contribute to your parent church's life, even before they see themselves as churchgoers, and even before they see themselves as followers of Jesus. So you're making all these connections right from an early stage. Welcome to Pivot. I'm Terry Elton from Luther Seminary. And I'm Dwight Shiley, and I am so excited to have as our guest in this episode, Michael Moyna, who comes to us from the UK. He is a leading scholar, educator, trainer, and practitioner in the mixed ecology and fresh expressions, the author of multiple books, including Being Church, Doing Life, 21st Century Christian, and Church in Life, Innovation, Mission, and Ecclesiology. And it's such a delight to have Mike Moyna with us on this podcast. Welcome, Mike. Well, thank you, Dwight. And it's uh, great to be here. Lovely to see you, Terry. And uh, looking forward to our conversation. We wanted to begin by going back a bit historically to the genesis of the Fresh Expressions movement in the Church of England and in the UK more generally. And we'd love to hear a little bit about that story. Where did this come from? Why why did it emerge? And particularly, what was you know what's been your role in it over the years and your story in connection to it? So, uh, in terms of my own story, uh, I'm a Church of England minister, uh, and I was leading a, a parish, a church uh, down in the southwest of, of England uh, in the nineteen uh, early nineteen nineties. Uh, we were doing some of the stuff that you might call fresh expressions today. But I remember one of the things I used to do is uh, it was before Alpha even. And I used to run these just looking evangelism courses every Monday evening. Uh, And so I'd run them for a term. Uh, At the end of the term, we would spin out the group as a home group. What I noticed was, uh, and so we just kept multiplying these new little groups around the parish. But what I noticed was that if people were belonging to that group and were already fairly involved in the church, then yeah, they would come on Sunday morning. But for those people who didn't get involved in the church, they would come to the group week by week, but they'd never come on Sunday. And so by the end of my time there, I began to think to myself, well, why am I even trying to get these folks on, on, on Sunday you know, you know, to normal church? Why don't I just start a separate congregation for them uh, and I began to think, where in the pub could I hold it and sort of and that sort of thing. But in my mind, I was still stuck with the idea I had to get them there on Sunday. And I couldn't work out how, how to do this because I had three morning congregations already on Sunday morning. And I was expected to be at all three. So I couldn't see how I could do a fourth without giving up something on Sunday or, or just something we'd have to give. And I couldn't work that out. And so, you know, it was time for me to leave the parish anyway. But that was the beginning of the questioning that I had, which was actually, why do we need to get these people to church in a conventional way? And then why do we need to get them there on Sunday? Why can't we get them there on Thursday or Wednesday or whatever? Uh, But I hadn't made that whole journey by that stage in the early 1990s. Now, I think in terms of the wider church, People were realizing that conventional evangelism, you know, will do an outreach event and then come to church on Sunday simply wasn't working. People didn't want to come on Sunday. They found the existing church alien. It met at the wrong time. They had family commitments. They may have been on shift work. There were a hundred reasons why they couldn't make it 
on Sunday. And so you might do all these great Alpha courses and outreach events. And we saw this with Alpha time and again. People would come to Alpha, but they wouldn't come to church. And that was one strand that was feeding into this. And the other strand was that people were doing conventional church planting and they were finding that that didn't work. So they would, for example, they'd take sort of 50 people from the congregation down to a school. They'd start a new service in the school. The people who came were often Christians from other churches who said, this is a better show than we've got, let's join in. But the people who didn't come were folks who weren't coming to church. And so there was a realization that this traditional way of church planting didn't work. And so what happened with Fresh Expressions, and I could tell a story, but I won't at the moment. But what happened basically was that people said, we've got to go out and make contact with people who never come to church. How do we do this? Well, let's go and ask them and listen to them and listen to God. And then they said, we've got to find a way of loving them in a practical way. And so they'd start sort of outreach activities of of love. They might start a cafe. They might uh, start meeting them uh, in a pub. They'd do all sorts of outreach activities, which were kind of forms of loving kindness. And we can talk about examples of that. And then people would gather around that waterhole, form community. And then in the context of community, people would say, now let's share the gospel in the context of community. And then as people begin to come to faith, it's no good inviting them to church on Sunday. Let's just let them form a little congregation where they are. And so uh, when I began starting talking about this in the early 2000s, I remember a couple coming. I used to use the language of emerging church in those days. People would come uh, to me. I remember a couple coming to me and say, you know, Mike, we must be doing emerging church. We've been lent a, a church house. We're living there for free. We've got to know some of the young people in the neighborhood. They don't go to church. So we've invited them into our sitting room. We have tea with them. We hang out with them. So that was the act of love. Community was forming. We've begun to share the gospel with them. And I guess they're forming a little church in our sitting room. And so people began to discover these different ways of doing church in the um, uh, late 1990s. Uh, And then the Church of England cottoned onto this. They wrote a report uh, called Mission Shaped Church Report, which pointed to examples of this and called on the church uh, to bless it and, and encourage it and give it support. And our new archbishop at the time, Rowan Williams, uh, he discovered these new types of church uh, in Wales. And he came in as Archbishop of Canterbury and said, one of my priorities is to give space for these new expressions of church. So that, that's a very quick potted history you know, uh, the Mission Shaped Church Report published in 2004 um, was very seminal in terms of giving permission for people to do this. I love that story and to kind of going back to the organic nature of how this was and just paying attention. I want to ask a question about the blessing of the church, as you just said. It seems like sometimes the blessing is a blessing and sometimes it can be a curse, right? Because then the church wants <laughs> to take it over or make it their own or whatever. What were the opportunities and challenges at that moment? Because I can imagine one of the things about the Church of England is it's a it's a Church of England, which is really different here than in the US context, but it also gives it the ability to spread in a really yep. different way or to be resourced. So talk about that a little bit. Well, this is exactly what Archbishop Rowan Williams had found in Wales. 
I mean, this is such a sign of a godly man, I think. He said when he became bishop and then archbishop there, that he would go and spend time on the edge of the church to see what the Holy Spirit was doing. And when he went there, he began to meet some of these people who were starting these unconventional forms of church. And they would say to him, Archbishop, we're terribly embarrassed that you've come because we don't really know what we're doing here. To be honest, we don't even know if we're allowed to do it. And, and we're a bit worried that you've shown up, that you might suddenly sort of shut us down. It was that kind of a, a, a mood and that kind of a conversation. And Rowan Williams said, you know, he just sensed that there was something of the Holy Spirit at work in all this. Uh, and so one of the things that, that, that we had to do in the Church of England was to give people permission to do this, to give them the confidence to do it. And so this is why the report was very important, because it said to the bishops, we need to recognize this and give it permission to do that. And they developed, to be honest, some pretty thin theology, but it was very incarnational theology, got us started, but it was quite controversial. It wasn't adequate. And a lot of our theologians found it very difficult. So we had to go on and do the, the really good theological work later on. But, but it was inspirational. And for many people, and I know lots of our pioneers uh, read it and began to, you know, were influenced by Mission Shaped Church and began to pioneer themselves because they had permission and because the incarnational theology did speak to them. And, and it was great because, it, you know, it said, look, Jesus went out into the world, immersed himself in the culture of the day. All we are doing as his body is exactly the same. And we're allowing forms of church to emerge that are, are appropriate to the context. And in the in context of a, a national church, which we are in the Church of England, which feels called to serve every person in the country, we were able to say, if we're going to serve these people, we need to be there alongside them. And we need to be starting little communities with them and among them. Otherwise, we're not uh, fulfilling our ministry, which is to be a church for everyone. So that was the kind of a theology we began to evolve, and, and in time we deepened it and, uh, and made it more robust. So the first thing we had to learn was to give people permission. The second thing we had to learn was to get, give it good theology, uh, and we had to develop that. And we had our critics, which were great, because the critics made us go back and do some of the good theological work. Uh, and there was a, a number of people who did that, and, and it was brilliant, you know, so that was good. I think we found that we had to sort of provide a catalyst to help people. Uh, and so the Archbishop and the Methodist Church set up a little organization called Fresh Expressions, which was a kind of little ginger group. We created video stories of what people were doing and spread those stories around and spread the news around and did vision days and so on. So we were spreading the word, and that was important. So we, we needed a little catalyst to do that. So that was a, a, a third thing. In any institution, there are roadblocks. There are institutional obstacles. And so we had to address some of those and try and sort of push away the roadblocks. And that, I think, is a fourth thing uh, you have to do. Uh, and then as we went along, and we can make this list as long as you like, but I think one of the key things was a need for bishops to move from a permission-giving role to a proactive initiating role. Uh, and we've moved in the Church of England much more to that second. Uh, and we now, in our, um, our official policy, 
is, is to create a mixed ecology church with lots of different expressions of church for different people in different places, all supporting each other and alongside one another. Uh, we're hoping for 10,000 of these new types of uh, Christian community to emerge by uh, 2030. Uh, and that's very much part of our policy and our aims and objectives and so on. So we've become much more proactive. So there's a shift from per permission giving to proactivity, if you like. So, Mike, I wonder for some of our readers who aren't as familiar with Fresh Expressions, if you could just share some stories of examples of, you know, what do these communities look like? I know there's a quite a bit of diversity. And what are some of your favorite case studies, if you will, or stories or examples? Yeah, I'll give you two or three. Uh, I, I love the story of Saturday Gathering. It started in what we would call a food bank or a food larder. Um, they were giving out free food on, on Saturday mornings. Uh, it was run on an ecumenical basis. And the Christian helpers uh, one Saturday said to the clients of the food bank, they said, you know, we're going to be here this evening and uh, we're going to um, uh, eat together. Um, we'll hang out together. We, 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 we might um, look at some stories that Jesus told and discuss them. Um, and we'll just have fun. Uh, come and join us if you like. And so 12 people came on the first evening, I think. Uh, after about 18 months, 60 people were coming. They were eating together. Uh, they were beginning to sing some Christian songs. They were doing a little bit of Bible study together. They were learning to pray together. And then after a couple of years or so, uh, a Church of England bishop, was invited in to baptize and confirm, uh, I think, up to 20 of these folks who've become Christians through this. And the leaders uh, went along to the other church leaders in, in the town, and they said, you know, we've got a problem. People are coming to Saturday gathering, and they're saying, it's our church. So we seem to have created a church. It's the last thing we wanted to do. Do you mind? Uh, and all these other leaders said, well, I'll tell you one thing, they're not coming to our church. So um, this is great. Uh, and so a church emerged. So that might be one example. I love this story because it's so different. About a friend of mine called Tim who was meeting with some young adults who were very disaffected with church, effectively had dropped out of church. They decided to host free canoeing for families. So they advertised on social media and other ways. If you want free canoeing, uh, come on Saturday afternoon. Uh, the little group paid for the canoes. And families went canoeing together, and then they'd have a picnic or a barbecue and eat together. And one of the um, uh, young adults would either tell or read a little Bible story for the children. Uh, the adults would listen on. And they did this for a while, and then Tim said, you know, if you want, you know, I see you quite enjoy the story. Tell you what, every Tuesday we meet for food and story. And we look at some of these stories about Jesus and stories he told and discuss them, see what we think of them. Why don't you come and join us? And so a little group began to do that and began then to, to, to make a journey into, you know, studying the Bible, learning how to worship it, and so on. And this is a long journey and it had its ups and downs. You know, it's, I, I, I tell it quickly as if it was, you know, smooth and progressive but there were setbacks and hiccups and all the rest, but, but that was it. And then quickly, a third example from uh, near Cambridge, a woman uh, in, a, in, a, in a village would take her children to school and she got to know other parents and uh, carers at the school gate. And as she got to know them and listened to them, she discovered that, that many of them wanted to hang out together and get to know each other. So she went to, to the uh, school teacher 
got permission to use the staff room. And uh, every Thursday after they dropped their children, they would meet in the staff room. She provided decent coffee and croissants and fruit juice and all the rest. She um, would show them uh, these little numa videos by Rob Bell looking at you know, issues of everyday life from a very gentle Christian perspective. And the women who didn't go to church there talk about that. And uh, it settled down, a group of about 15, 18 people would meet regularly. And then after a while, she noticed that, you know, some of them were becoming quite spiritually hungry. And so she said to them, if you want to explore more, I'm going to meet uh, on Tuesday morning. and We'll have coffee together and we'll look at some of the stories about Jesus and see more about him. Uh, and so uh, they, they read scripture together, they met together, they did some Bible study together, they learned to pray together, they did some simple worship together, and they became effectively a little worshipping community, a congregation you might like. And uh, after a while they said, Sue, we love all this, it's so exciting, and we'd never heard about Christ in the way that you're describing him and so on, but it's no good for our partners because they're at work, it's no good for our kids, they're at school, and so they said, can't we do something for them and our friends? And so they started a new initiative on Saturday afternoon, all age basis with food and fun and Bible story and so forth. And I think that became the center of the community. I think the Thursday morning gathering at school began to dwindle because they all got older and their kids went up to sort of secondary school and so on. And so this uh, new group became the sort of center of the community. But if you listen to all those stories, they all follow a particular journey. Uh, you know, they start with listening to God and listening to the people in the context. You find a simple way to love people, free canoeing. Uh, we give you free food. We, you know, come and meet together in, in the school staff room. We organize that. Uh, community forms around that activity. You know, free food for the Saturday gathering. They come and eat in the evening and then community forms. And then in the context of community, they begin to share the gospel. They begin to talk about their experiences of Jesus. And then as people come to faith, they form a little worshipping community where they are. They don't come to church on Sunday. They start becoming church, if you like, or congregation where they are. And then at their best, in the case of Sue, for example, they go and repeat the whole process again. And so it's sort of a process of listen, love, community, share the gospel something akin to church a christian community emerges connected to the wider church and then you repeat the process and we found that time and again in lots of different ways and it's always much more messy than that little journey describes but they basically follow that little journey and we call it the missional journey i love that and i i love the organic nature of those stories that you that you told of people started where they were and they were just noticing my question would be, as you moved from more organic to more systematizing, right, to more kind of proactive, as you said, and kind of looking around the whole country and saying, how, we, how might we find leaders to start these missional expressions? Was it more like, we're going to scout and watch and, and point out, hey, you're doing this. Could you become a fresh expressions kind of ministry? Or was there some kind of training that people went through or some conversations and then they went and began? Like, how was that process of leadership for these okay. new fresh expressions? So let me give you two different models. 
So one model is I'm involved as a consultant to the Diocese of Oxford's new congregation program. And what we did uh, during lockdown uh, was uh, we went and, and we went to uh, our local churches, we call them deaneries, and we said that if you're vaguely interested in developing mission, we will meet with you in, in twos and threes. So come uh, if, from your parish or your group of parishes, and we'll just have a Zoom conversation with three or four of you. And the Zoom conversation would start, just tell me what already outreach activities have you got? So they talk about luncheon clubs and coffee mornings. And I would say to them, you know, have you ever thought if you restart that coffee morning, you could put a little spiritual extra alongside it? So what you could do is you could say, if you want to stay behind at the end of the coffee morning, we're going to have a little spiritual zone and we're going to light a candle and we'll play some Christian music and we'll read a passage from the Bible or from a spiritual writing. Uh, we'll have a few minutes of quietness and uh, you can pray to God if you believe in God or just have head positive thoughts for other people and situations. And then we'll just wind up at the end with a very short prayer. Maximum 10 minutes. And then I would say to them, you can imagine what would happen. You know, you do this for some months and then someone says, hey, I'd like to talk about, you know, th these Bible readings. And I've got ideas and I disagree with them. I've got questions. Can we talk about it? And so you begin to extend the time to 25 minutes. Well, what have you got? You've got some worshiping music. You've got some prayer. You've got a scripture reading. You've got the sermon in the form of a discussion. What have you got? You've got a little congregation there. So these clergy would go, aha. So I would say, look, if you want, you can add a spiritual extra to an outreach activity that you've already got. Or if you want, you can start from scratch. And you may have two or three people who are longing to do something in the community, some act outreach, and they can follow that little missional journey of listen, love, build community, share Jesus, uh, start a, a worshiping community connected to the wider church, do it again. And then I'd say, now, look, if you are interested in doing that, the next step is for you to bring your lay teams to what we call a greenhouse. And you bring them to this greenhouse and they will meet with other teams and there'll be other teams from the locality. They'll all be doing different things. But what they'll do is they'll all have in common that they're trying to travel around this missional journey. And then we will meet two or three times a year, either in a long evening or on a Saturday morning, when the teams will come together and they'll do their planning. They'll ask three questions. Where have we got to on the missional journey? What could we do next? Brainstorm ideas. What will we do next? Come up with a plan. And we actually also have a resource. And I waved them this little book, which is our resource. Uh, and I said, um, here it's got lots of different stories and ideas and frameworks that you can dip into that will help you travel around that journey. So you're not stuck. I don't know what to do. You just say, I've got to the listen stage. How do I listen? You read a couple of chapters in the book, which will take you no more than 20 minutes. And that will give you all sorts of ideas and frameworks and uh, stories about how other people have got started. So we did that. And, and what the clergy said to me was, they said, Mike, we've heard about Fresh Expression so many times, but we never knew how to get from A to B. These little learning communities help us to get to B because we can see that you share the mission or load and you help them through these, mission, these communities 
these greenhouses to travel around the journey. And so we started rolling out. In Oxford, we've probably rolled out about seven or eight of these greenhouses with probably about eight teams in each one. And we've done that from the, you know, over the last two years, tail end of the pandemic, uh, coming out of lockdown and then the last year. So we think this is amazing because everyone's so exhausted by the pandemic that to get sort of 60 to 70 teams doing this, we think is a sheer miracle. So that's one model. And then another model, uh, very quickly, is a group of Roman Catholic and Protestant churches that I'm working with in Switzerland. And they are forming a little institute uh, because in Europe, if you're a Catholic church, you probably have two priests in a parish and you may have 30 paid lay workers. And so they said, we're going to form this institute and we're going to train these lay workers and we'll train them in one strand of theology and then we'll train them in that missional journey and structure a whole curriculum around that missional journey. And then we will do one-to-one coaching with them while they're there. And we'll say, when you go back to your parish this next month, go and find a team. And who might, you come back in a month's time and tell, tell me who might be in your team and why you're thinking and praying about that person. And so they coach them all the way through. And then they say, when they've left, you know, we might have one team and then a second team and then a third team. When we get to three teams, we'll bring them together into a greenhouse, one of these learning communities. And so they're starting very slowly, one team at a time, but they say, we'll just keep on building up, building up. And when we've got too many teams for us two to coach, we'll pay for a third person to come and join us so that we can expand the coaching resource and we'll just expand our resource at the pace that God takes us to start um, these new communities. So my model is you just go out to the parishes and draw people into the the, uh, greenhouse. Their model, which I'm working with, and I believe equally strongly, is you start by training a training institute. You give them good theology. It's a two-year training, uh, one or two days a week. You train them in the missional journey, and you use the material in this textbook here and add to it some theology and so on. But then you coach them in great detail month by month. And then as teams emerge, you bring them together into these greenhouses where they learn together and share together and where they get excited because they're meeting with other teams who've got so many different interesting ideas and they see God at work in them. So for our, our listeners, just to clarify, the, the workbook that you're describing is called God Send and it is available on Amazon, it looks like. And yeah, we'll I, put a if, link if, for if, it. If, in I, our... if I, uh, yeah, first of all, it, it, it's a second edition. The one I've waved at you is the one that's on the Amazon UK. There will be an American version. It'll be published in the middle of May. So if you're, I don't know when this podcast is going up, but if the listeners want to wait till May, it'll be on the US Amazon or they can go on to the, uh, and I have to say the American book will be much nicer to look at. It'll be better designed uh, and it'll be brilliant. So if I was in your shoes, I'd wait till middle of May. But if someone is sitting there and saying, I can't wait, then they just go to the UK Amazon. They can get, it's Godsend. Uh, my name is the author and they're looking for the second edition and there's a forward by Michael Beck. Wonderful. So what you're describing is a lot, it sounds like a lot of lay-led expressions and a lot of lay leadership really you know, permeating this movement, but with some really intentional connection and support from clergy. Do you want to just say a little bit more about that? Because I think sometimes 
you know, clergy can hear about innovation work and they think, oh my gosh, I've just got to now add this onto all this other stuff I'm already doing and I'm already burned out and depleted and I don't have time. But what you're describing is, is quite different from that. Yeah, I think it does need clergy leadership and oversight that the, the lay people can lead it. For example, you know, I've been to Florida and I've seen churches with fantastic luncheon clubs with people who, you know, dinner church uh, for people who, uh, who are unemployed and so on. Uh, and they're led by lay people, but they need to have the support of the clergy, obviously. So I think I'd be saying to the clergy, first of all, you need to have a vision for what this can look like. And the vision is of a wheel. There's the parent congregation, which is the hub. And then you've got around the rim, new little communities emerging, outreach activities. Um, it may be a luncheon club with older people. It may be a, a coffee morning. It may be a, a food par parlor and, and, and an evening gathering with them. You know, it may be in this particular church in Florida I visited, uh, there was a, a senior citizen uh, and she gets together a group and they, they're all writing their autobiographies for their families. And, um, and she realized when she heard me talk, she said, that would be so easy to add a spiritual dimension to that. You know, as we, as we look back over our lives, was God at work? Do we believe in God? Are we glad that we, he wasn't at work? Or, you know, what do we think about it? And you add a spiritual conversation to that. So you want to imagine that round the rim uh, of the church are all these new worshiping communities uh, emerging. And then you want to imagine that these communities are connected to each other uh, uh, by the rim, and they're also connected by spokes to the hub. And so what you've got then is a parent congregation with lots of congregations that are offshoots. All right. So that's your big picture. And, 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 and in this particular church in Florida, uh, someone said to me, oh, you know, it's a real struggle, our, our dinner church because the main congregation doesn't think there's anything in it for them. So I said, oh, no, no, that's because you haven't got this vision. If you've got the vision that you're all connected together, then the very first thing you do once a dinner church is settled down is you take your notice sheet that you give to everyone uh, by email, you print it out, and you put your notice sheet on the table in the luncheon club, in the dinner church. And on that notice sheet, you put all your activities plus the dinner church. So people will just hardly read it, but they'll register they're part of something bigger. And then someone will come to you and say, hey, look, I've been reading here. You're forming a choir for the carol service. Can I join? And someone else will come to you and say, hey, look, I see you're looking for a bookkeeper to help your treasurer. I've done that sort of thing. Can I help? And so people will be volunteering to contribute to your parent church's life even before they see themselves as churchgoers and even before they see themselves as followers of Jesus. So you're making all these connections right from an early stage. So I'd be saying to the minister, get that vision. That's the vision. And then I'd be saying to them, take this little godsend book, read it, and then start talking to members of your congregation. Start with what you've got. What outreach activities have we got where we could add a little spiritual extra on an optional basis at the end of when we meet, you know, what, what are you doing? You know, have you got sewing circles? What, what have you got where you could add this little spiritual dimension, a spiritual zone, whatever it is, headspace, whatever you want to call it. And so start with that. 
And then I'd say as part of your pastoral work as a minister, talk to members of the congregation and say, take me into your lives. You know, who do you hang out with? What do you do during the week? What are your passions? And then begin to ask them, well, if your passion is cycling, could you ever join up with someone else and form a cycling group? And could there be one or two people who don't want to go cycling, but who organize the food for when you get back so that you all socialize together? And so I'd be, you know, seeding all those ideas. And then as I do that, I'd be saying, right, if you're interested, let's go meet regularly. And I'd be meeting with them regularly. And then I'd start with one group and another. And if I've got two or three groups, I'd then bring them together and start a little mini greenhouse, you know, a, a, a learning community. We're all following that little mission or journey together, listen, love, and so on. And we're learning from each other. We're praying together. Uh, and, and we're doing it all differently, but we're going to encourage each other and meet regularly every three months, six months, whatever. So that's what I would do as, as, as a minister. And I would be saying, look, part of this is what I would want to do anyway as a good pastor. I'm helping my folks to enrich their discipleship in everyday life. I'm bringing together mission, church, and personal discipleship in their lives. So this is what I'd want to do, isn't it? That's why I was called to ministry, you know? But I'm also wanting my church to reach out and to grow. And this is a great way to grow my church. So it's completely win-win for a pastor. I love that. I was thinking about a couple congregations and some pastors that I know that I talk about and thinking, how would they hear that? And I wonder about two things. One is I'm in the Midwest and Many of us come from heritage that reaching out and inviting someone into a community is as scary as about talking about Jesus. Those two things are not always in our DNA. And so part of what I'm curious about is how have you seen, and maybe this is different in the settings that you talk about, but maybe not, how do you encourage people to say, hey, reach out to your neighbors and invite community, because I think people are really longing yep. today for community. And that's a rich, ripe fruit for us to, you know, to tap into. Yes. But also, how did you help people give the confidence or the risk to talk about Jesus or to invite them into the story of the Bible or some of those that kind of second move? So talk okay. about those two things. Okay. So two, two really important moves. Uh, great questions, Terry. In terms of the first move, we always say to people, form a team, find a friend or two or three people, because it's really scary doing it on your own. Uh, and then do it in an aspect of your life where you feel comfortable. So, for example, if you're a school teacher, take donuts into the staff room every Monday and give away free donuts uh, and just do that. Now, this begins to answer your second question, because when someone says to you, why are you doing it? Um, you just say, well, we are followers of Jesus, and this is what Christians do. But if they say, well, hang on, what do you mean by that? Then you say to them, look, tell you what, me and my friend, every Thursday afternoon, we meet for half an hour. Um, Jesus is known as one of the world's greatest spiritual teachers. So we look at some of the stories he told and some of the stories about him, and we see what we think of them. So why don't you come and visit us? We'll buy you a drink, and it's only for half an hour. So when the person comes, what you do is you read a parable and then you ask four questions. The first question, you just say, this is what we do. We ask one question a week because we've only got about 15 minutes for this. 
So the first question is, if this story happened today, what would it look like? And so you talk about that. And then at the end, you say, we, what we like to do is have a bit of headspace where we pray to God as we understand God. Uh, and you just do that for three minutes. Then the next week, and you do this anyway, whether anyone's joining you or not. But the next week, hopefully the person comes back and you do the second question. Uh, what's the story saying to you? What's it saying to me? Discuss that. And then the third week, you say, uh, our third question, you recap the first two is, could the story make a difference to my life? Might it make me uh, think about God more? Might it make me pray more? Might it make me think about this other person in my workplace differently or whatever? Uh, could it make a difference? And you talk about that. And then you come back and you say, you know, we like to do an experiment. We like to see whether it does make a difference. We're, we're really relaxed. Some experiments work, some don't. So we're not fussed about this. And then the fourth week, you come back and you ask the fourth question, did the story make a difference to my life? How? Now, the brilliant thing about this is that any Christian and non-Christian can take part. You know, you don't have to get all wound up about telling your Christian story and uh, telling them about Jesus because the Bible does the evangelism. And all the Christians are doing is simply joining in the discussion, which is as simple as joining in a discussion about a film. Now, we have four or five different approaches that use the same principles that are here in the Godsend book. And so if, for example, someone was wanting to start out and they were really anxious about how do we take that step from building community to sharing Jesus, I would just say, turn to the chapters in this book because they will give you just four different, really simple ways of doing Bible study that are completely non-threatening, both to folks who don't go to church and to Christians. So the key thing is to find a friend or more, do something in a passion of your life. If you like films, then invite parents of the school to a film club. We're going to watch a video this Friday, and then next Friday we'll eat together and discuss the film from a spiritual angle. So that's all you do. So this is not scary because it's around what you enjoy doing. And so it actually enhances your everyday life rather than uh, diminishing it. And, you know, it's not another task I've got to do for the church. No, this is my passion. I enjoy films. I'm now going to be able to do this with other people and I'm going to make friends that way. And, and if you're an extrovert, you'll love it. If you're an introvert, you might find that a bit scary. So what you do is to join up with one or two other friends. So you do it together. And then if no one comes, doesn't matter. The three of us can shed tears together and drink all the alcohol that we brought in, in hoping that they come. You know, that's, that's fine. So uh, it's, it's no great big deal. And then, as I say in the Godsend book, we'll give you some ideas for how you can share uh, Jesus in such an easy, natural way that even we British, who are 10 times more shy about sharing our faith than you, and even Anglicans, who are 10 times more shy than the average Brit, even they can share the Christian faith uh, using these very simple approaches. So, you know, it's very much doable. But we've had to learn over the last 15 years how to do this stuff. So I love the brilliance of beginning where people already are, not going alone and then keeping it really, really simple. And I think there's the, the genius of that when so often I think it's easy, particularly for clergy, to overcomplexify all of this. And like, let's keep it really simple and accessible, which means it's then repeatable 
and multipliable. I mean, people can take hold of these practices and improvise on them in whatever context or whatever community space that they're already connected. And I think this is those are really important points that you're you're sharing, Mike, that we want to just lift up as we think about how this really has spread as a movement across the UK in so many different contexts and spaces where life plays out. It's not one size fits all, even though the basic process is, you know, is simple and replicable. It can then, you can sort of do jazz, if you will, on it and improvise in different settings and contexts. So that's brilliant. That's a fantastic uh, summary, if I may say so, Dwight. You, you, sh- you, you, you should be in my seat. You, you do it much better than me, you know. <laughs> I loved the place you started with us and within your movement of just opening up spaces for permission. I think so often in, I'm an ELCA Lutheran, and but I think Episcopalians, uh, um, Anglicans may not be that different. We get so caught in our head first, right? Do we have the right theology, those kind of things, as opposed to giving permission to experiment and yep. to just wonder what is God, where's God showing up and how can we lean into that? And get, we get worried about where do we call this church or not church? As opposed to saying it's a life of faith of yeah. which we're just called into into doing and being. And I too, I think those questions are amazing. And and I I feel like it's both training and evangelism at the same time, right? The leader, yeah. loosely called leader that's teeing up the question, yeah. is going to be as transformed in that process as maybe the person that just got curious and showed up. Right. And Terry, let me give you some statistical evidence for that, because in the UK and, and your, your, your viewers and, and listeners, you, if you Google Church of England, the fruitfulness framework, the fruitfulness framework. Now, what they did was that during a lockdown again, uh, they went to 200 people in about 20 different new Christian communities, fresh expressions of church. They asked them about 24, 25 questions covering all sorts of different aspects of your spiritual life. So the sort of thing they'd say is, when you joined your fresh expression, were you praying regularly? 45% of the people, and they were mainly Christians, said yes. And then they said, now at the time of the survey, are you praying regularly? And the response was 65%. And for every question, there was dramatic improvement how do you feel about yourself do you you know do you feel you've got a meaning in your life and i can't remember what the figures were but i think it was something like you know do you feel compassionate to other people you know or do you feel like doing a good turn to other people and you know 38 percent said well when we joined our fresh expression we did regularly now you know 68 percent would say we do this regularly i can't remember that's the exact figure but for all these questions about you know how you feel about yourself how you feel about other christians how you feel about your community roundabout, how you feel about God and relate to God. There were dramatic improvements in the Christians' spiritual health, and they coincided with their involvement in these new Christian communities. So I go around now saying to church leaders, if you want to grow disciples, here is something much better than a discipleship course. Because you say, when I looked at these figures, 
I said, if I'd done that survey in my church down in southwest England, and if I said, when you joined, when Mike came as your vicar in, in 1989, were you praying regularly? Now, five years later, are you praying regularly? If I'd seen those results, I would have gone around to all my fellow clergy and said, revival's breaking out here, make me a bishop. You know, they, I'd die for those results. So what I'm saying to clergy is you can put everyone on a discipleship course as much as you want, but your chances of seeing that improvement in their spiritual life in practice, you will almost certainly not see that degree of improvement. If you want to see improvement in people's spiritual lives, there is no better way than for them to be on mission with one or two other Christians in a walk of their life, working with people who don't go to church. That stretches your faith, increases your dependence on God, encourages you to pray more, gives a focus for your discipleship that you didn't have before. I keep saying to people, look, most people, being a Christian is like playing soccer without goalposts or it's like playing volleyball without, without a hoop. You know, you, you kick the ball around, you throw the ball around and you think, what's the point of this? And eventually you get bored and you walk off the pitch and you join the crowd walking by and the world disciples you. But if you give people a, a fresh expression on new Christian community and they're involved in it, they have a whole focus for their discipleship between Sunday and the next Sunday. And that, as I say, is, is transformative for people's Christian lives. So I want you know, everyone in Britain and everyone in America to say the key to getting disciples to make disciples and just get spiritual growth is to encourage people to form these small new Christian communities. That seems to be the route forward. So why not go and do it? That's wonderful, Mike. I have one last question for you. So I'm also an Anglican. And, you know, for those of us who are in traditions really influenced by the liturgical renewal movement, which has placed the Eucharist sort of at the center of weekly gatherings for people, many of these lay-led fresh expressions aren't going to have Eucharists in that way. And, and how have you navigated that in the Church of England in terms of people's piety and experience of the sacraments? So again, our, our prayer is, I, I have to say, you know, the story I'm telling you, in real life is much more complicated and messy, all right? So, you know, don't just think, hey, I start one of these new communities, I, 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 I'll start a little luncheon club, and three months later, I'm going to have a new worshipping community. It takes much longer than that, and they, you know, they're high points and low points in your journey. But we want them all to be sacramental. Now, many of our fresh expressions start out around a meal, and they have a meal involved. So straight away, you know, the Eucharist came out of the meals that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. So straight away, you are beginning a Eucharistic journey. What you can do is, and what, what we encourage people to do, is to say, look, if you're a lay person, uh, when you get to the stage and people are beginning to worship and they've had these discussions about Jesus and they're beginning, what you can do is to introduce a remembrance of the Lord's Supper. And if you do this, you need to say this is not Holy Communion as we understand it in the Anglican Church or as we understand it as Lutherans or whatever. You just say this is a remembrance of the Last Supper. It's not a formal Holy Communion, but it's a way that we remember what Jesus did before he died. And you tell the story, you read 
a passage from scripture. Uh, and then you just say, let's pass around the cup, let's pass around the bread. And you just, you know, just share that very gently in an f- informal way. And, you know, within the Anglican church, you know, we have these agape suppers and so on. And that's quite legitimate within canon law, as long as you have said this is not a holy communion. But you then go the next step. And you say it's really important that we do celebrate Holy Communion in the way that Anglicans traditionally understand it, or Lutherans. Uh, and so you um, you might invite your local minister to come in and preside at a Holy Communion. Now, some of our pioneers say, oh, we don't like that because they're not already part of the community. But I say to them, no, that is the very point of inviting them in, because they come in to remind you that you're part of the wider and bigger church. So they come in. Uh, and, and they preside at a communion. You might do that once a month, once every three months, even once a year. I keep reminding people that in Europe, you know, within the Catholic Church, often the Eucharist was only consumed once a year anyway, you know, twice a year. The efficacy of the sacrament doesn't depend on its frequency. So, or you invite your fresh expression, your new worshipping community, you invite them to join the parent church for a celebration of communion at Easter and, you know, at Pentecost and at Christmas and, and whenever, you know, you might want to do that. So you find ways to join up with your parent church. You find ways to invite the uh, vicar or the minister to come into the church so that you then have an authorised Holy Communion uh, as a part of the wider church. And that's the way we've approached this. So, you know, you do a journey and you have informal little celebrations uh, of remembrances of the Last Supper, but then you have the formal one in some of the ways I've described. Wow, I love that. That's really great. Michael, our time is running out. Uh, I really (laughs) thank you for just for the great stories, for the imagination, and really for the resilience of being on the front edge of what could it mean to have a mixed ecology, to reimagine church and reimagine what it means to gather and Mm. do life together around, Mm. around faith in this time. And Mm. I'm grateful that next at our next episode, we get to look with Michael Beck around what, how is fresh expressions kind of found its way into the North American context and kind of continue that story on this side of the pond, if you will. Absolutely. I mean, he, he, he's brilliant because his little church in Wildwood, they had 14 or 15 of these fresh expressions. So you want to get him to talk about some of those. They're great, great stories. But it just shows what you can do because it was not a big suburban right. rich church. It was a complete opposite, near, near extinction, actually, and came alive again partly through these new communities. So I'm really glad he's joining you. He, uh, I'm a great fan of Michael's. Awesome. Thank you for your time today. And we encourage listeners to continue to join us in this season of Pivot as we looked at the mixed ecology. This episode of the Pivot Podcast was brought to you by Faith Lead. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to faithlead.org to gain access to our free resources. See you next time.